1: Today on something you should know, snooping and eavesdropping. It's something we all do, and I'll tell you why. Then great advice to improve all the little things you do every day, from waking up in the morning to how to clean a room or write an email.
0: We talk about the subject line. It should be seven words or less. So you want to make the experience of reading your email really nice. You want it to look good. Skip the long greeting. Um, You want to get right to the point and only CC people who need
1: to be CC'd. Also, why driving tired may be just as bad as driving drunk. And what you never knew about water. How much there is, where it came from, and why we've never had a shortage of water ever since it got here.
2: The quantity of water on the planet has been essentially fixed ever since. For the most part, it's exactly the same amount of water. Whenever you take a drink, a water Mike, you should consider that it probably went through the kidneys of
1: some dinosaur at some point. All this today on Something You Should Know. Are you one of those people who just buys things with whatever credit card you grab out of your wallet? Well that, that could be a costly move. NerdWallet, you've heard of NerdWallet, NerdWallet lets you compare credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. So if, for example, you like travel rewards, you can see which credit card gives you better rewards than the credit cards you've got now. Think of what you could do with better rewards. Free flight, room upgrades, who knows? Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and so much more at NerdWallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life today. Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. You probably don't consider yourself a snoop or an eavesdropper. I don't. But the fact is, we all do it. It's human nature, and snooping and eavesdropping once served a very important purpose. Survival. In fact, all animals eavesdrop. In order to protect ourselves from our enemies, we're wired to try to discover things that they don't want us to know. Conversely, we keep secrets from people about things we don't want them to know. Think about the purpose of a whisper. I mean, the only reason that people whisper is to tell something so that someone else doesn't hear it. Although it's considered bad manners, bad behavior to eavesdrop on others, it's pretty hard not to. Even though we don't need to do it for survival so much anymore, we still have that curiosity to know what other people are doing behind closed doors. We satisfy that desire today with things like reality TV or social media. All those things tap into our biologically driven need to peek into other people's lives. And that is something you should know. The goal, the aim... The hope, the purpose of this podcast is to give you interesting and useful information, much of which you can use in your life. And so in this segment, you're going to get so much expert intel and information that you can use in your life, you may want to take notes. Aaron Ruddy is a writer who's put together some really practical information to help you live your life better and easier from the time you wake up in the morning until you go to bed. She talked to a lot of top-of-the-line experts, put it all in a book, and it's called The Little Book of Life Skills. Hi, Erin. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Hi,
0: Mike. Thank you so much for having me.
1: So what I really like about this is that, you know, most of us just, we do what we do to get through the day because that's the way we do it. That That's the way we've always done it. And we seldom stop and think, well, maybe there's a better way to do this thing, or maybe there's a better way to do that thing. So what made you stop and think, maybe there's a better way? I think
0: it was right after I turned 40 and realized that I still was not quite adulting. I don't always love that term, but um, I felt like I wasn't getting through the day with any sort of efficiency or... Um, I felt very frazzled at all times and I'm a magazine writer and I spent 20 years of my life interviewing experts for the best way to do any number of things. Um, But I realized I hadn't quite implemented them in my life. Um, And I thought, what if I took all of that advice and reached out to the top, top experts? Because I am not an expert, right? Um, But I know a lot of experts after 20 years of doing this for a living. So I said, what if we just... um, you know, talked to each of them and got their distilled best how-to steps for doing everything from how to wake up in the morning to how to offer condolences, how to write an email, empty your dishwasher, all the things that we do that make up our day, um, just a little bit better.
1: All right, so let's jump in here and start with the best way to wake up in the morning.
0: So the best way to get out of bed, this is uh, my expert, Michael Bruce, who's uh, the sleep doctor. He's fantastic. And there really is an, an actual order in which you're supposed to do these things. I didn't realize that. For one, you should not snooze, right? You should never hit the snooze button. There's no way to get back into any kind of deep, fulfilling sleep. It's just going to ultimately make you more groggy. As good as it feels to hit snooze and roll back over, ultimately, it's it's not the best thing for you. So you want to Swing your legs over and get your feet on the ground. And once you're there, you're like halfway home, right? You want to take five deep breaths because the oxygen will stimulate your brain and it'll get you kind of waking up. You want to drink a full glass of water. And that's because we lose um, almost a liter of water through the humidity in our breath at night. So you're waking up already dehydrated. So if you can drink that glass of water, that's going to help you. And if you can get outside within 10 to 15 minutes of waking up into the sunlight, that's really important, and it's because we have this um, melatonin drip in our brains, and it creates this groggy morning feel. And the blue light in sunlight will stop that. It'll stop that melatonin drip and give us it'll kind of clear that morning fog. And it also just feels really good to get outside, and it's such amazing way to set yourself up for a good day. And you can go outside, get your mail, walk around, pick a few weeds, water your garden, whatever it is. You can also turn your shower water really cold at the end, um, and that helps you wake up refreshed as well. Um, I do that occasionally because it's a little it's a little tough.
1: So help me get out the door in the morning, because I think that's a tough one for a lot of people, especially if you have kids, and then where are my keys, and I can't find my wallet, and I'm running late. So what's the magic to getting out the door on time and stress-free?
0: So Laura Vanderkam, uh, my productivity expert in the book, or one of them, she, she does the uh, steps for how to get out of how to get out the door in the morning calmly. And she has this great quote, which is, the space between putting on your shoes and backing out of your driveway is not zero. So many people think that it is, and that's why they're five minutes late everywhere. And I certainly fall in that category. So it's really about designating a place where you keep all of your stuff that you need for your day to get out the door, because that's when we get become late. Oh, I can't find my shoes. Oh, I can't find my keys. Oh, I need this. I need that. But if you have a home for things and you always put things back in their home and that home is maybe a mudroom or a foyer or a little hallway by your front door, then when you're walking out the door, you always know what you need to get. Um, And there are, you know, she also talks about, which I love, is transport less stuff in general, right? What do you really need for your day? Edit, edit, edit. If you're going into an office, maybe you keep two things. Maybe you keep a pair of shoes in your office, you know, running shoes for the gym in the office and a pair at home. An umbrella, keep an umbrella in your car and one at home. One of the great things is just making sure everything has a home and putting it back there. It's about closing that loop.
1: Let's talk about an effective email because everybody writes emails all the time and I get a lot of emails and some of them are clearly a lot better than others. So what makes an effective email?
0: My email expert is Justin Kerr. He's fantastic. And he basically says that people, the reason we all wind up working late is because we were terrible at writing emails. Um, and it's all about spending a little extra time to get that email crafted in a way that is going to get the answer you need or the response you're waiting for faster. So we talk about the subject line. It should be seven words or less because we might be writing an email on a laptop and it might look all big and beautiful, but most of the time people are reading it on a device, on a, you know, a phone while getting into a cab um, pretty quickly. So you want to make... The experience of reading your email, really nice. You want it to look good. Um, Skip the long greeting. This is hard for some people. Um, You want to get right to the point. And, you know, we're taught in school to do an intro, then supporting evidence, then a conclusion. With an email, you want your conclusion right up top, what it is you're hoping to get from this email. And then we talk about bullet points. Using bullet points, using white space, and making sure that your thoughts are organized so that the person can say, Yes, or whatever it is, um, in order to get back to you faster. And then delete anything superfluous, add more white space again. Um, he's not a big fan of signatures, like long, long, long signatures with quotes and everything else because they junk up people's inbox. But it's really just about spending that little bit of extra time. Check your formatting and, and always make sure, just double check, take that five seconds and say, did I attach the thing that I said I was attaching? right cuz we all get those emails that are like oh sorry i forgot to attach it the thing i just sent and then now you've got two emails in your inbox and we just have to be a little bit more careful about what we're how we're junking up other people's inboxes and only put people you know only cc people who need to be cc'd
1: i know you talked to bobby slay uh, about how to make the perfect burger so let's talk about that
0: you don't want to get fancy meat you want you really want some like you want fat in your meat, 80/20. It does not have to be like the most incredible whatever. You just want 80/20 meat because you have to have some fat in there. And he's a big fan of a thumbprint, putting a thumbprint in your burger patty, you know, your raw patty that you make. And that's because the burger puffs up, and our we're, we're tempted to push it down when we're grilling it. And when we push the burger down, all the juices kind of gush out of it, and you don't want that to happen. So if you push this little print into the raw burger when it cooks, it just comes back into the shape. So you're not supposed to push it down at all. Hot, hot, hot pan. He's a big fan of cast iron skillet, and he is a huge fan of American cheese. It was kind of hilarious listening to him talk about that, and I loved it. You know, he's like people get highbrow with their cheeses. People, you know, he's like American cheese. It's the best melting cheese. Um, slightly toasted bun. But yeah, the the thumbprint is huge. I think for um, and and then he also says, you know, you're not making meatloaf. You're making a burger, right? So you don't have to put like a million different things into your meat. Just meat, salt, pepper, hot, hot, hot grill, or a hot, hot, hot pan.
1: Talk about the best ways to keep things from becoming messy, because you know how it that, that just kind of creeps up on you. you pretty soon over the course of time. All of a sudden, rooms are messy, the house is messy. How do you prevent that?
0: I love this idea of don't put it down, put it away. And it's a very simple mantra for keeping your house tidy, keeping your office tidy. Um, and it's... Just this idea that if you walk in the door, rather than kicking off your shoes, put them into the closet or put them where they belong, right? Because, you know, it doesn't seem like a big deal, but at the end of the day or two days when you have eight shoes laying around your mudroom, then it's a bigger project. Um, When you take a shirt off that you don't want to wear, don't throw it on your chair in your bedroom. Hang it back up, right? Close that loop. It's all about being kind to your future self, right? It's like, cause you're the one that's going to pick it up later anyway. So, so you may as well just do it. And that um, Gretchen Rubin is, um, she did the one minute rule in my book, which I love, which is sort of similar, which is any task that can be done in one minute or less, just do it. Whether it's quickly responding to an email, sending a text, opening a piece of mail and discarding it, changing the paper towel roll. So I'll walk by the paper towel roll in my kitchen And it's empty, you know, and sometimes you just want to take the paper down and stick it next to it. But I'm like, Erin, that's a one-minute, that is less than one minute, just do it. So I love the one-minute rule, too, because it's just like simple things that you can do. You know, it's a nice little mantra, something that I can remember.
1: We are talking about simple little life skills that can have a real positive impact on your life. And my guest is Erin Ruddy. She's author of The Little Book of Life Skills.
0: Seeking the truth never gets old.
1: So Aaron when a room when a room is messy though when it does get messy how do you tidy up a room in 10 minutes or less
0: tidying and, and pretty much a lot of these things one of the tricks is setting a timer and the first step to tidying a room in 10 minutes or less is to set a timer and you're doing that because anyone has 10 minutes right um, but when you think about cleaning a room you think oh it's going to take me hours or I don't have this time for a marathon cleaning session so if you put on your timer for 10 minutes and you look for the things that are going to smell first. So dirty laundry, garbage, dishes, those are the things you get rid of first and put them where they belong. Um, And then you look at flat surfaces because our eyes go to the flat surfaces. And if you know, you can clear off one or two of those flat surfaces, you know, cleanliness begets cleanliness. You see that you feel better then you want to keep going. Um, And I love this trick. And this is from Rachel Hoffman. She's my tidy room expert turn around, walk out the walk out of the room and then look back into the room. And the first thing that catches your eye, deal with that because that's often something that's been bothering us, right? If we walk by our dining room and we see a pile of, you know, papers or whatever, like that's the thing that's been bothering us. So take the time and just deal with it. And then you can always set the, you know, set your timer for another 10 minutes if you if you feel good about it. But setting a timer is such a nice little productivity hack because it reminds you that this stuff is not as big a deal as we make it in our heads when we're procrastinating.
1: Yeah, I like that. That timer thing is, is great because you, kind of, you you almost like trick yourself into you keep going, but, you, but with the timer, you know you can stop because the timer went off.
0: Absolutely, exactly. The timer thing works for emptying a dishwasher too because the first in my steps for how to empty a dishwasher, and there are specific steps and reasons you want to do things, but the first step is ask yourself what you're doing with the next four to five minutes of your life right? Like if it's not, you know, curing cancer or something incredibly important, just empty the dishwasher because it's one of the things we all put off more than anything. And once you, again, if you time yourself doing it a few times, you think, okay, same thing with folding laundry and putting it away. Really takes about five minutes to do a load, uh, you know, to put it away. But I mean, I, for one, will let that load sit and compound. And then there's six loads of laundry to put away. And that's a totally different animal.
1: So how do you empty a dishwasher better?
0: So you want to open the bottom rack first and deal with that first always. And that's because the top rack where you have your cups and some bowls can often collect water. I don't know if you've ever opened the top rack of your dishwasher and water sloshes around like that dirty water, you know, that gets caught in some of those cups and then it spills all over your dishes on the bottom and that can get very frustrating and my dishwasher expert just talks about piling, you know, putting them onto the counter first so you get everything out and lined up your dishes, and then you just carry them over to the cabinets rather than taking one, you know, when I watch my kids empty the dishwasher, they take, like, one spoon and walk it over <laughs> in one dish, and that's, like, not so efficient. Um, but really it's, it's about doing that bottom rack first and, and piling things together into groups.
1: One of the things you discuss is how to walk into a room with confidence, which I think a lot of us would like to know, because sometimes, depending on the situation, you're walking into a room full of strangers, it, it's hard to walk into a room with confidence, so so how?
0: This is from my expert, Lydia Fennett, and she's you know, a Christie's um, auctioneer, she's fantastic, and... This is all about knowing what you're going to say when you get there. So the first step is come up with an opening line to use when you get wherever you're going. And that can be into a board meeting. It could be into a PTA meeting. It could be into a family dinner, going to a friend's home. But having that, knowing what you're going to say when you get there is kind of like a great little, it's just a great little trick. It could be anything. It could be how, you know, oh, the, you know, how, how about the weather? What about that flooding or whatever it is? Um, but just knowing what you're going to say and then simple things like check yourself out in the mirror or your phone and make adjustments because, you know, if we're pulling on our shirt or fiddling with our hair, that doesn't, doesn't make us, doesn't project confidence. Right. And then and she talks about the adrenaline that's flooding your body when, when you're walking in somewhere of importance and focusing on using that to energize yourself. And then this part I love, but but say, I've got this out loud, which is a little bit embarrassing, but it just, you know, we, we, our brain is like, that's the supercomputer that runs us, right? And if we tell it to say, I've got this, then you've got this. Um, and then stand tall and smile and go. But I think the, the nerves can often come from the anticipation of like an awkward silence when you get into a room. And so if you know that you're going to say something, and I actually, when I talk about this, come up with something positive, Right. You know, like whatever that first thing is, if it can be something positive, that's great. Rather than saying, oh, my God, I hit so much traffic. Did anyone else hit so much traffic? You know, try to spin it positively because then you're also bringing a positive energy, not just confidence.
1: You have some advice about how to start the day with a good attitude, which I think a lot of us could use. So what's your advice there?
0: And this one comes from Hoda from The Today Show. And she is, you know, as positive as she seems on television. And she says the first thing you should do when you wake up is write down three things you're grateful for. And what I love about this is it can't be like the sunny day and my family and my health, like just really specific little things, right? Like today, I was grateful that a tree didn't fall in this crazy storm we had last night. And um, I was grateful that my children are back in school full time, you know, little things. Um, And I was actually, I said, the other thing I said was I was grateful to be doing this podcast, you know, because this is fun and I'm, I'm grateful to be here. So little specific things and then write down something great that happened in the last 24 hours. And the idea of this is that if you train yourself to wake up and go to the positive, you're going to look for the positive all day. It takes some time, but often we wake up and we're like, oh, I forgot to do that thing or, oh, I have this work event or this thing today or, oh, I didn't get enough sleep or whatever it is. If we wake up and start listing the negatives, our brain's going to go negative all day. And so this is literally just about trying to keep yourself aware of the positives. And, you know, it's been more important those last two years than ever, um, which is why I like the specificity of it. It doesn't have to be big things. It can literally be like, oh, I'm so glad I washed my sheets last night, so I don't have to do it today. Little tiny things. Um, But I love that. And it really does help you reframe your day to be a good day, no matter what's going on in your life.
1: Talk about, because you have some good advice about how to calm down when you get upset, how to calm yourself before you react and often later regret your reaction. So talk about that.
0: It's from David G, who's a meditation teacher and a stress manage- management expert. This is a great tool for you get an email and before you want fire off your response or a text or someone says something, or even in traffic, you can do this without closing your eyes. Um, Whatever it is, calm down before reacting. Take a beat. And what you do, it's, it's 16 seconds, and you close your eyes. You visualize what it is that's stressing you out, and you inhale slowly to the count of four and visualize your breath kind of going down. And you hold that breath in your belly for four seconds longer, kind of visualizing it. Then you exhale audibly so you can hear it and watch your breath as it flows back out for four seconds and then you hold the exhale for four seconds. And so you're focusing those 16 seconds, you're focusing on that breath. And then you open your eyes and breathe normally. And what it is, it's just, it's, he calls it a pattern interrupt. It's meant to just reset your brain quickly um, and stop you from whatever, you know, train of thought is causing you all of this anxiety, whatever's going on. And it just gives you a quick moment to step out of yourself and then go back to that text or email. And you might still be upset, but it just checks you. And what I love too is if you do it four times in a row, you're meditating. You know, he's like congratulations, you're meditating, right? So that calming breath can be so important.
1: Yeah. Well, as I said at the beginning, you know, we we go through our day, we do what we do because that's the way we do it, and it's really good to take a look at how we do some of the things we do and how we might do it better. And you've given a lot of a lot of good ideas. Erin Ruddy has been my guest. The name of her book is The Little Book of Life Skills and you'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks for being here, Erin.
0: Awesome. That was fun. Thank you so much, Mike. This is awesome. I love chatting with you.
1: As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. I remember hearing as a young boy someone say, you know, you can go days and days without food, but you won't last very long without water. And that always stuck with me. And it certainly drives home the point that water is so crucial to life. We all need water. And yet there's a real problem with water on this planet. There's too much of it in some places and not enough of it in others. Where I live in California, as I record this podcast, we're having a serious drought here and throughout the western U.S. Other places, there's plenty of water. Sometimes, there's too much of it. Since water is so key to the survival of virtually every species on this planet, we all have to be concerned, and there is a lot about water I bet you don't know. But you're about to. Giulio Baccaletti is a globally recognized expert on natural resource security and environmental sustainability. Trained as a physicist and climate scientist, he is author of the book, Water, a Biography. Hi, Giulio. So I imagine that in the biography of water on planet Earth, humans are a big part of that biography. So what has been the relationship between water and humans that has led us to where we are today.
2: It's a really interesting story to me because now, man, Homo sapiens, as it were, has been on the planet for something like three hundred thousand years now. For the vast majority of that time, we were hunter gatherers. We essentially moved around and adjusted our location uh, depending on what was happening around us and on the availability of food. Um, and then ten thousand years ago, something changed. Right? We we essentially decided to stand still in a world of moving water. We became sedentary. We, we decided we would stay in a place and, and can manage the fact that around us there would be floods and storms and droughts and that we had to kind of cope, right? And so the story of humanity, the story of civilization is a long history, 10,000 year long history of layers and layers of institutions of trial and error to try and manage this reality, the fact that we've decided to stay in a place, grow our food, have our homes, um, in a world in which in that particular place there may not be water one season or there may be too much another season, right? The last 100 years have been special because, I mean, I think you live in California. The Californians are a good example of this. People living in California might operate under the illusion that we completely control our water environment. You know, nobody leaves their home and has to wade a river on their way to work, or very few people do, right? Most people can open their tap and get water out of their faucets. And so we live in this this constructed illusion that we completely control the world of water. And this is an anomaly in, in human history. It hasn't been the case for most of our history. It's only been in the last few decades, a century, that that's been the case. And it's the result of all the investments that we've made in infrastructure, in the landscape, and the institutions that we have to manage water. It's created this illusion, you know, these 45,000 dams around the world that have replumbed the planet, catching almost everything that comes down from the sky, has rendered this illusion for us. And so that's been very different, right? And it, it's gotten used to thinking that water is not a problem. But in reality, what's happening uh, what's in the last couple of years and what's happening now, and we see it in the west of the U.S., is that in reality, that illusion is breaking.
1: So let's go back to the beginning, to the beginning of the biography of water. Where did it come from? How did it get on this planet? Where is it? How much do we use of it? And, and let's start the story.
2: So that's interesting Mike because it it is you know sometimes people talk about water and they'll say oh we'll run out right i mean it's sort of the uh, they imagine water as if it were oil we sort of use it until there's no more and in reality that's not that's not true right i mean essentially water we don't know exactly how water appeared on the planet it, it either degassed from the interior of the planet or it most likely came on a series of asteroids uh, billions of years ago but however it arrived on the planet whether from the sort of b- debris of a previous star or whether it came from uh, from asteroids, The quantity of water on the planet has been essentially fixed ever since. Not exactly. There's a little bit of what's called hydrolysis. So, you know, water can be, the molecule can be destroyed. But for the most part, it's exactly the same amount of water, right? I mean, whenever you take a drink uh, of of water, Mike, you should consider that it probably went through the kidneys of some dinosaur at some point, right? That's the same stuff that just keeps recycling around in the planet. So water is not scarce in that sense, but there isn't a lot of it. And most of what is there is in the oceans over 95% of what the water is on the planet is in the oceans and the rest is mostly locked up in ice, uh, much of which is inaccessible or underground, right? And again, much of that is inaccessible. So what we have to play with, what human beings recognize as water on the landscape, the rivers, uh, the lakes, the wetlands that we sort of see around us, well, that's a tiny, tiny fraction, less than 0.1% of the water on the planet. That's what we have to play with. So even though water is not fine and it's not scarce in the same sense that oil is scarce, you know, we're not going to run out, it's finite and it can be scarce in any given place at any given time. And so the story of water from the very beginning, from when we became sedentary and and kind of created for ourselves this problem of having to move water to where we were, the problem we have faced is is how to build infrastructure and how to organize ourselves to make sure that we had water when we needed it and where we needed it.
1: Just to be clear, you said that the accessible water on the planet is one-tenth of one percent of all the water on the planet.
2: That's right. And, And, you know, for some people it's even less than that, right? I mean, it's very unevenly distributed. You think about, you know, the fact that that's the water that we see on the landscape. A quarter of that is in Lake Tanganyika. Most of us don't access water in Lake Tanganyika, right? So in reality, we have a very, very tiny amount of water that's accessible to us at any given time. And we have to do everything with it. We have to grow food, we have to, you know, power industries. Uh, you know, remember that water is the principal energy vector of the industrial economy. And we have to, uh, we have to drink and, and, uh, and wash ourselves and clean our citizens and so on. So uh, we have to do a lot with very little.
1: Well, why can't we get the rest of it? And why can't we access the water in the ocean and just do something to it that makes it more user-friendly?
2: That's a very good question Mike and, and we can of course I mean it you know we desalination exists and in principle you can move water around the problem is that it's very it's very expensive right so if you fill up your bathtub yeah, with water in your bathroom that's about a, a, a kind of a cubic meter of water and that's a ton right uh water is very very heavy so moving water around ends up being very energy intensive you need energy to lift water from the sea up into, you know, higher ground. You need water to lift it out of the ground. And it turns out that if you did that at scale, if you if you ended up relying on converting water that's currently not usable, like the water in the ocean, into water that's usable, even for things like uh, irrigation, say, the cost would be so high that uh, you would end up, uh, you know, essentially distorting the economics of food. You make food effectively uh, unaffordable. Um, just think of this, if you, you know, when you draw water out of a, of a river, say, uh, the average cost of drawing out a bathtub of water out of the river without cleaning it, right, without treating it, but just the, literally the cost of the infrastructure to pick it out, that's about one or two cents per cubic meter, right? It's so one or two cents per sort of bathtub. But if you were to do the same, Uh, in desalination, you're talking about a dollar or two dollars per cubic meter, so a hundred times more, right? And that's without having to then move it from the coast to somewhere else. Now, the the story is not quite draconian as that. You can reuse some water. There are are sources of water that are easier to treat than the ocean, but on balance you know, just because of the economics, we need to make do with what the sky provides, essentially, right? Which is the water that falls down in whatever catchment or whatever river basin we live in.
1: Something I think people wonder about, I certainly wonder about, is the water that goes down the drain. Like what you're yeah. you're heating up your, your shower and all, there's all this water that's coming that is totally unused, just comes out of the shower and into the drain. Is that pretty much just sent out to the ocean and that's the end of it or is there any are we advanced enough where we recapture that water and do something to it or what's the deal
2: for sure yeah we we uh, we certainly can um you know reuse is an important a lever, particularly in in dry places, is an important solution to the problem of water scarcity, right? Because, as you say, you're sort of sitting there, you know, standing there under the shower, and most of the water that you're using isn't actually used to wash yourself or rinse yourself; it's simply going down. and And it's it's dirty, but it's not, you know, it's not uh, it's not so dirty that you couldn't imagine cleaning it. In fact, reuse is a perfectly viable um, solution, and indeed, it's been adopted in. California itself and uh, much around the world. The driest places on the planet, places like Dubai or places like Israel, routinely make use of uh, of reuse technology. But remember that th- the problems that we have with water, for the most part, are problems of agriculture and food production. In other words, if you think about if 100 is the whole amount of water that we're using, 98 of that, 98 units of that 100 are the consumptive use of agriculture, and only two are for everything else. So while, you know, the the experience of most people of water is the water comes out of your tap or out of the faucet, from a society's perspective, the story of water is fundamentally an agricultural story, right? And again, for that, at that scale, the use of uh, reuse is, it's not impossible. I mean, it can be done and under certain conditions it can be done, but it's, the economics are tricky.
1: So that's pretty ama- an amazing statistic that uh, if all the water is 100, 98% of it is agriculture, and a lot of the other 2% is industry, and yet so much emphasis is put on household conservation. Well, how, how much could we possibly conserve if we did it perfectly?
2: There's a couple of reasons for that. One is that in some places that percentage is different, right? That's the average percentage of the world. But there, of course, there are places where cities account for a greater fraction of the whole. Um, But it is true that, you know, the the real, the kind of fundamental story uh, of water is not is not really the urban story. I mean, there there is a story, another story, Mike, that we might get to later, which is there are a lot of people in the world that don't have access to that water in their home, right? Or don't have access to, you know, the shower that we were talking about. And so in that sense, th- there is a story to be told there. But, but in terms of conservation, in terms of ensuring that society uses less of this scarce resource, you know, yes, you can do some things with lawns when you can do things with bathrooms. I mean, it, it's not immaterial. And in some places like around Los Angeles, it's it's important. But it's mostly important because we spend so much money and so many resources trying to bring water to where people decide to stay put, right, to the cities. So it's a mostly an economic story. The volume story, the story of where we can really gain uh, in savings is really an agricultural story. You know, what do we grow? What do we use the water for? What are we growing with it? How much water do those plants need? If you're growing alfalfa or nuts or something else in a very arid place, are they drawing too much water? Is there an alternative? Those are really the fundamental levers or levers of efficiency in agriculture. You know, things like drip irrigation that some of our uh, your listeners will have heard of or even hydroponics right Th- those are ways of reducing the amount of water that gets used in 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 agriculture and that's really where the winds uh, the winds are
1: isn't a lot of the story of water a cycle and and what i mean by that is for example in california we're having a pretty severe drought right now we've had them before and then a rainy year comes along maybe two and the drought is gone, and everything's fine for a while, and then there's another drought. And in other words, it's a cycle. It's happened before, it will continue to happen, and in some ways, it seems as if it self-corrects.
2: Yes, there were cycles in the past, but there were far fewer of us, right? So there was a time when Egypt could feed a third of the world's population. There were just a few million people on the planet, right? Not seven billion people. So yes, the, you know, the climatology may... Uh, reach similar play points, uh, you know, over time. But our, our life is different. It's a bit like when people compare the impacts of hurricanes, right? And the, the question is less whether hurricanes have changed or not, and more whether we have changed. We have changed enormously, right? We've, In fact, we've changed exponentially. So that's one aspect of this. the The, the other aspect is that, you know, yes, we recovered, but At what cost, right? And what happened to the people that lived through that? Yes, we recovered from the Dust Bowl. um, But there was immense suffering and great economic uh, uh, upheaval. and, And, you know, it was a real fault line in society. So, you know, will we disappear completely? Of course not. I mean, life will go on. Suddenly a planet will keep going. But, you know, how many people have to suffer uh, as a result of going through this is the real question. And what I'm arguing is that we've learned a lot from those past experiences and we can do a lot to mitigate the impacts. But to mitigate the impacts, sometimes we'll have to make some uh, pretty important decisions.
1: So I understand that, you know, we have Mother Nature. And as a result of Mother Nature, we sometimes have water in places where we don't need it or want it. And we don't have water in places where we do need it and want it. And this causes a lot of problems for people. But on the other side of the coin, we have human ingenuity trying to figure these things out. And and just as an example, look at the city of Dubai. I mean, here is a, a seemingly a thriving city in the middle of the desert that has somehow managed to figure out how to have a city... And, and, and supply the water to people in the desert. that humans figure these things out.
2: No, no, that's right. And I, you know, and I'm Dubai exists, right? Now Dubai, the carrying capacity of Dubai in the Emirates is probably 15, 20,000 people, the real carrying capacity of that landscape, the amount of water that is there, the amount of land that is there. But you know, 10 million people live in Dubai. And why can they live there? Well, because they, you know, have air conditioning, and they port everything from everywhere else on the planet. It's a choice. Now, it might not be a very sustainable choice. And it may pose enormous costs, some of them are borne by other people. Um, I, you know, my point is that we make choices and I think we are at a stage where the changes in the climate system are such that we're going to have to make some other choices. We may still want to live in these places, but we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that life can go on as, you know, as, as it did
1: before. Well, how does Dubai get enough water for 10 million people?
2: In part, it desalinates a lot of it, right? So uh, for drinking and for showers and the likes, it also reuses an enormous amount. I mean, you know, if you are staying in a hotel in Dubai, likely is that that water went through a uh, treatment works and was actually used previously by somebody else. So it's, you know, those countries, particularly the GCC countries are, you know, approaching, you know, 90, 95% reuse when it comes to domestic use. And then critically, I you know, the, the story of water, as I said, is a story of food. And food is entirely imported, right? So they're entirely Dependent on commerce and imports from uh, from other countries. And much of the Middle East in there is in that situation.
1: Well, when I listen to you and then I think about, you know, all the warnings we get about shorter showers and low-flow showerheads and don't water your garden except on these days of the weekend, the kind of things that individual people and families and households can do to conserve water is literally a drop in the bucket and doesn't really address the problem. It seems like this is more, you know, a PR thing and a feel-good thing than it is really addressing the problem.
2: I mean, it's, it's, it's not PR. Everything helps, but it's not the crux of the issue. Right. It's important. And in some cases, as I said earlier, some cities are dominant water users in the places where they are. So it's not always the case that it's just agriculture, but on average in balance, whilst it's important for people to conserve, because I think being wasteful for no reason at all doesn't make any sense. I think the framing that this is a problem of consumers is kind of the wrong framing. I think this is a problem of citizens not consumers. The debate that we should be having is not what, you know, not just what product to buy or which low flow shower head to install. I mean, that's important and it's interesting, but far more important is people's engagement on debates about what the future of the landscape is, right? Do we want a farming sector? Because if we do, there's costs and responsibilities that come with that and we need to support it and we need to figure out how to make it work, you know? And those are... Those are about sh- you know sharing public resources. They're about the role of the government, the state and federal government, and things that may not be particularly fashionable to talk about. But you know the reality, uh, Mike, is that the West of the United States is inhabited the way it is today because of the underwriting of the federal government. The Colorado River was plumbed by the Army Corps of Engineers, right? We made a choice, or you made a choice, you guys made a choice hundred years ago, that the West would be. Populated, and that there will be, you know, no limits to growth. And you decided to build infrastructure to support that ambition. It worked. It worked for a hundred years. It turned, you know, the Western United States into one of the wealthiest and most productive places in the world. But it turns out the solution has run its course, and and now there's an equivalently important discussion about what comes next.
1: Well, it just, I don't know. As I listen to you, it it seems like the solution is pretty obvious. It's just really, really expensive. You're going to have to move water from there to here, or here to there, and that costs a lot of money, or you're going to have to find some way to treat it, and that costs money. But there seems like there's plenty of water, it's just, it's in the wrong places, and it maybe it's dirty.
2: Yeah, I mean, in theory, yes. In practice, the economics just don't work out. I mean, people have thought about this for years and years and years, and uh, you know, I mean, we may be surprised. Uh, you know, you know, someday somebody may come up with a way of very, very cheaply desalinating water. And uh, right now, there still are very specific energy limits to how how cheap you can make desalinated water, for example, right? So there's just a floor, a physical floor to how much it costs in energy terms to take out salt from uh, from water. Maybe you will be surprised. But at the moment, the reality is that, you know, building a pipeline from Canada to 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 Nevada, aside from all the geopolitical and environmental issues that you'd face, simply is not economically viable. You just, it doesn't work, you know, it just, uh, you can't make it work. Um, And so we're left with other options, Uh, you know, we have to talk about what it is that we grow, we have to talk about how much we grow, um, now we have to talk about what people that, you know, were growing but now can't, what, you know, what do they do? How do they, how do they shift? How do we support a transition of an economy that's been there for 100 years?
1: It seems, no, no offense, but it seems like a lot of what you're saying is that we need to have these conversations about what we're going to do. But don't we know what to do or at least what to start to do and, and stop talking about it and actually do something? Are we doing something?
2: Yes, I mean we know what to do. As I said, you know water is a relatively low tech uh, sector. So aside from the sort of high end stuff of desalination reuse, you know w- we know how to make agriculture more efficient. We know how to make agriculture uh, more productive, and we also know which crops might use more or less. I mean we you know we can imagine a transition, and we also can imagine. You know, that that we can add some infrastructure, but none of this is a flip or a switch, right? I mean, it takes time to build things. It takes time to transition, uh, you know, economic businesses from one type of production to another. It takes time to switch from one type of irrigation to another. And so the sooner we start, the better. Huh? Because but have we, uh, we've wasted a lot of time. But
1: have we started? Is the clock now running or are we still talking about starting?
2: I don't know that it's as fast and as universal as some might like and we started late, but I think many farming communities are now realizing that this is a problem. Uh, many cities are realizing that they, you know, their surroundings are in trouble. Um, and so I, I think people are doing things, whether they're doing them fast enough, uh, probably not. Uh, and you know, I mean, in the end, the sort of natural system, climate system will define the conditions under which we operate. So if we don't move. you know, it will move for us. When there isn't enough water to go around, then somebody needs to decide how to allocate it, you know? And so, in a way, it will solve itself. The problem is how much pain will we have? And I am saying the sooner we start making the investments, the sooner we start transitioning some of these farms, the sooner we start kind of dealing with this as the significant political problem that it is, uh, the better equipped we'll be to face the challenges that are ahead.
1: One of the interesting things you point out is that oftentimes, or sometimes, the solutions that we come up with create new problems. And, and, and So give me a couple of examples of what you mean.
2: For example, we were incredibly successful at making it possible to grow food in arid environments like uh, uh, like the West. When John Wesley Powell went around the West, he didn't think anything could grow there, right? It needed the intervention of the federal government. We were very successful, so successful, in fact, that everybody moved there, thus creating the problem that we have now. You know, levees are incredibly successful at keeping floods at bay, so successful that then people live under them until they fail, and then, you know, you have a catastrophe. So it, it's a... Th- it's 10,000 years across the world of constant struggle and dialectic. And it's, you know, we're never, we're never static, right? It's a dynamic relationship. And, and I guess where we are today is that the dynamics has accelerated. Um, And so it's, uh, it's a really interesting time if it wasn't so difficult, you know? Um, And, and, and I think we'll see over the next uh, 10, 15 years, some profound changes.
1: Well, given how important water is to the survival of everybody and everything on the planet it's really interesting to hear how it works and what the challenges are and what the potential solutions are Giulio baccoletti has been my guest he is a recognized expert on natural resource security and environmental sustainability and he is author of the book water a biography and there's a link to that book in the show notes thanks Giulio thank you Mike it was a great pleasure (music) You are likely well aware of the dangers and the risks of driving drunk. But you may not be aware that driving tired is also extremely dangerous, even though it doesn't quite have the taboo that driving drunk does. If you are tired, you shouldn't drive, is the recommendation of Dr. Matthew Edland, who is an internationally renowned rest, sleep, and body clock expert. If you must drive when you're tired, the old standbys like coffee and opening up the car window may not be enough to keep you awake. So here are a few other techniques. Sing while you're driving. Singing makes you move. It fills your body with action and pumps up the lungs. Move to the music. It may be hard to dance while you're driving, but you can sort of try it. If you feel the music you love in your body and get going with it, it should help wake up a sleepy brain and prepare you for travel. Try taking a nap. If you didn't get enough sleep, try parking and napping for just 10 or 15 minutes. It can prevent accidents and make you far more functional later on. And rest enough. Even if you slept good the night before, you may be operating on a sleep debt from getting too little sleep over the last few days or weeks. That can catch up with you very quickly on a long, monotonous drive. And that is something you should know. If you like this podcast, please tell someone you know, ask them to listen. If you like it, they're probably going to like it, and it helps us grow our audience. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know